This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. My kids have become huge, huge Toy Story fans over the last couple of years. And obviously, uh, when you look at the world of of filmmaking and the entertainment industry over the last uh, couple of decades, Pixar has become really a behemoth in the industry. One of the men tasked on building the company and taking it public was Lawrence Levy, who amazingly got a phone call one day from a man by the name of Steve Jobs. And then he jumped on board, an amazing rise to, of this company, one that, as we said, has transformed the industry. Levy writes about his experiences with Jobs and Pixar in his book, To Pixar and Beyond, as well as what he learned along the way. And Lawrence Levy joins us on the show right now. Lawrence, great to have you on the show. Great to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thank you. What was it that, that made Pixar work so well uh, at, at the outset and really got this company going? Well, you know, it, that took a while. You know, at the outset, they were honing this creative process and they were honing their technology over a long period of time. But it didn't, it had never really come together. You know, they had tried to make different products, different technologies. So they had this, they, they were like an amazing technology without a market. Right. Uh, and so that was what I found when I started there. And you talk about it, the fact that the company, when it really was getting going, was really struggling, right? I mean, if, if not only were they trying to figure things out, but the company itself was struggling. Well, if you think that a company that had lost, basically burned through $50 million of investment, and when I arrived there in um, uh, early 1995, the shortfall in the monthly payroll was being paid out of Steve Jobs' personal checkbook. So <laughs> that's a company that was uh, struggling, certainly you know, financially. We are uh, joined by Lawrence Levy. The book is To Pixar Beyond and Beyond. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. It is a company, though, that that would you agree that it has kind of transformed the industry? We're at a point now where if we don't see, you know, five animated films a year coming out of Hollywood, then it's kind of a down year for the industry? I do. I think so. I liken Pixar to what the Disney company did in the late 1930s, early 1940s, where they transformed film entertainment with traditional animated feature films. Pixar did it again by transforming the whole field of animated feature films uh, by using the medium of computer animation to tell new kinds of stories. I'll get back into this for a second, but in your time working there, which was what, I guess a little over a decade it was. In different capacities, it was about 12 years. Right. Uh, what was it that you learned from working there that, that, that you still carry in your, whether it's your professional or personal life now? Well, there were many lessons. You know, I'll, I'll give you one example. When I got to Pixar, you know, there I am, like a CFO, sort of business person, and I see these films are taking like four, four and a half years to make. Right. And I'm like, my goodness me, we ought to better shorten that. Let's make these films in three years, and that's a way to, you know, increase our, our profitability. Um, so I had this feeling that, you know, we should, we should shorten the cycle. And by the time I left Pixar, I was like, I have no idea how we can get one of these made in four years. <laughs> and, <laughs> The reason for that is because of what it takes, for the, what, as how much the creative process takes. And there I learned a whole different kind of respect for 
what it takes to do great work and how long it takes and that you can't rush it. But but Steve Jobs, I guess, at the outset when you came on board, was somebody that you know wasn't that present within the company. He was obviously this was post first run with Apple, and he was worried about next, and it, you know it, it was before that secondary run with Apple, correct? That's correct, and he this was one of the challenges that we faced because he was a little bit like an absentee landlord. He he um, <laughs> he owned the company, but he was never there at the company. The company sort of had built its own kind of culture, and they had quite a lot of fears about what he might do if he became more involved. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. What was it that, I mean, obviously Toy Story, really, I mean, it, it, it started something for this company, uh, but there had to be something within the company, not just the films itself, that really turned this uh, this this entity around and got it got it rolling in the in the positive mode that it is, you know, and it has been for the last two decades. Well, I would say there was a few things. First of all, it was focusing the company. So when I got there, it was doing a whole bunch of different things: selling software, selling animated commercials, uh, developing short films, and and making a feature film. So one thing that it did was drop everything and focus only on the feature film. Right. Uh, and then it was basically the coming together. Making these kind of products requires all kinds of different forces, uh, you know, creative, technical, business, production, and Pixar mastered the art of harmonizing those, all of those different forces so that they, that they function together instead of against each other. And the relationship with, with Disney was there pretty much throughout, correct? Yes, the relationship with Disney was on two levels. It was really interesting. Like the creative level, it was a great relationship. The collaboration between the storytellers at Pixar and their sort of mentors at Disney in the early days was great. But at the business level, the level of the contract and, and, and the agreement, there was a lot of tension in the relationship. So we had this multi-level kind of relationship to, to manage. Uh in terms of deciding to to put the company public, what were the challenges that you faced as as the CFO of that company? One to make that decision to do that, and, and as you talk about it, it was kind of in an industry that really didn't understand what Pixar really was trying to do for a while. Correct? That's right. I mean, there were several challenges. No, nobody understood Pixar as an entertainment company. Not even Pixar, by the way. That was a sort of a change that had to happen throughout. And nobody had really ever successfully created an independent animated feature film company. Even Disney over the years you know, had long, long ago diversified away from just animation. And then the third problem is that um, the sort of, you know, the nice smooth curve of growth that investors like to see uh, in, in the animation business just isn't likely to be there. It's a very up and down kind of revenue stream. So you have to get Wall Street and investors sort of accustomed to that. So even with the success of Toy Story, there had to be a little bit of, well, okay, are they going to be able to pull off a next great film? Oh, there was. There was a, a huge amount of uh, speculation. And sometimes I say, you know, of course, Toy, the release of Toy Story was an amazing moment. But, you know, the release of A Bug's Life, which was Pixar's second film, and it was a, it was a, it was a big hit. And it, um, sometimes it gets forgotten about a little bit because that's the film that kind of showed that we could do it again. Well, and, and that's interesting because I, I think if you think about it, and obviously A Bug's Life, you know, it, had, had, it was a great film and, and it, it 
it has drawn so much attention. But I think if you think about the scope of all of the films that Pixar has done, A Bug's Life may be down on the list a little bit. And in terms of maybe pure box office, commercial, maybe even, you know, it maybe doesn't get as much play as, you know, sort of, sort of Wally or, or, or Nemo or The Incredibles. But as a moment in the sort of history of the company, it was the moment when you could say, hey, we've done this twice now. There's something really serious going on here. We're joined by Lawrence Levy. The book is To Pixar and Beyond, My Unlikely Journey with Steve Jobs to Make Entertainment History. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. I'm going to go back to, to something you mentioned a little bit ago. You, you talked about kind of the production schedule uh, in the early portions of, uh, of the company, and that was something that you were very nervous about. And, and the fact that, as you said, now, you know, uh, Good, th- good things happen to those people that wait. It is kind of the old line. It, it actually, you had to kind of actually believe that because you weren't, you weren't of that uh, philosophy, were you? No, I wasn't. And you know, one of the things that I worried about all the time was whether the business pressures would stifle the creativity within the company. So the production schedule is a great example of that. It comes down to how often are you going to try to release films and. I felt we ought to try to release one film a year, and at the time when I joined, it was like one film every four years. Uh, And after a while, I realized that that was going to just put too much pressure on the creative teams. And so we settled at first with one film every two years, and then we moved to every 18 months. But... You know, those kinds of decisions were, um, were, were pivotal to what we were doing. And, and from what I read, the, the dealing with a creative team was something that was a little bit of a unique process for you as well, because the traditional movie industry, sure, you, you know, you have your director and your producer and, and all the other people around the production itself. But once the film stops shooting, they're off the books. They, they don't have to be paid anymore. This was something a little bit different because a creative team has to be paid no matter whether they're actually working on a project or not. Yes, that's right. And uh, at least within that industry, this issue is called the carrying cost issue. And it's the cost of carrying your creative and production teams, even when they're not making a film. And so this can get extraordinarily expensive. And so a lot of thought went into how do we navigate that? Because we knew we had to keep um, we had to keep these these people on board. So then, how how did you do that? Because as you said, you know, part of this company at the outset was doing other projects. If you don't have those other projects, and, and you're relying specifically on the films, and you have this concern about putting too much pressure on them, how did you balance that? So it was a combination of things, and so Pixar did continue to make short films because it wanted to train new production crews and new directors, so that's one thing that was happening. We, we learned how to put films into staggered production schedules so that you would slowly increase the size of the crew on a film, and so through that kind of jockeying, we were able to navigate those, uh, those carrying cost challenges. When did it re- really come about that that the decision for Pixar to sell to Disney, which I guess would have been around what two thousand four, two thousand five? Yeah, even later, around even sort of yeah, end of two thousand five, two thousand and six. It, it didn't. It came up you know, much later in in that two thousand and five time period, and it was a product of. Uh, in some ways, it was a product of Pixar's success. Its stock price had skyrocketed, and there was a great danger, certainly I felt, that even a small slip could cause a huge uh, decline in its stock. And so 
um, you know, that's a moment when a company would uh, normally think about either using that high-priced stock as a currency to acquire other companies or to go into a more diversified company and sort of spread the risk of that. And that was the, that was the initial impetus for that that acquisition. And, and you talk about uh, the fact that I guess you went to, to have a conversation with Steve Jobs about this specific fact, and I guess to a degree he beat you to the punch in terms of kind of deciding this was the way to go. Yes, I mean, we, it, we, I, when I went to him with that conversation, I think it was, it was a kind of an easy conversation. We were both in a very similar place, and it coincided with Bob Iger taking over the helm at Disney, and so it became sort of an easy step to say, well, let's go find out where he's at in terms of um, the future of animation within the within the Disney company. How big of a shift has this company and animation in general been for the film industry? Because I, I I think back to you know at that time you know the mid '90s. The, the film industry was kind of a set in stone. You know, you had the actors, you were making the films, you obviously had blockbusters still. Uh, but but animation really became kind of, I, I guess the best way to say it is it became a disruptor, didn't it? It did. I think that the animated feature films that, that Pixar was making, they became these franchise films where they were generating, you know, revenues not just from the box office, but from all of these ancillary uh, um, revenue streams that are associated with that, you know, whether it be video, DVD, uh, toys, TV, merchandise, theme parks. And we see a lot of that today where the studios are investing in branded um, franchises, you know, like from the comic books and, and things like that, that have this sort of, they're like a juggernaut of generating revenue on multiple different channels. And you know, the, the Pixar films in many ways sort of paved the way for that. Well, I was going to even say, you know, the Saturday morning cartoons. I mean, I'm, a, I'm of the age, I'm, I just turned 50, that, you know, when I was younger, I grew up on waking up on Saturday morning and you could watch a couple of hours of cartoons uh, on your TV. Now, it's not as much that way now uh, in the TV industry. But in some respects, I think animation kind of filled that niche for a lot of people. Oh, oh, definitely. I mean, and also fills the niche of, of family entertainment, right? This is the yeah. one thing that was sort of uh, um, Pixar took very seriously, the notion that family entertainment means everyone in the family is entertained. It doesn't mean you can take your kids to see a film. It means you want to go as well. And, and you know, that part of the market, I think, Pixar filled, you know, as well as or better than, than, than any other. So then, in many respects, this was a generational shift, too, because obviously you had the people that were uh, of the older uh, age bracket now, like myself, that remember the Saturday morning cartoons, and we're passing this down almost to our own kids. And obviously the market was there to build directly for the kids to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the greatest compliment at Pixar when somebody says, you know, like a, a grandparent or, you know, says, you know, I took my whole family to see the film and everyone loved it. Uh, you know, then it's like at Pixar, it's like, yeah, that's exactly what we were, that's exactly what we tried to do. How much of a concern, and you mentioned a little a little bit ago, but how much of a concern with all of the, the, the strong films that this company had made, how much of a concern was there of failure? Well, you know, it's, it's funny. It's like there's always that concern. I don't think any single film ever feels like it's easier than the previous one. Every film has its challenges, has its crises, and I think what Pixar 
did over and over again, sort of repeatedly, it was never rest on its laurels, never did it think that, oh, kind of, we've got this down. <laughs> Every time Pixar, you know, made a film, no matter how successful it was, it would go back and review all the things that went wrong and see what could be learned from it. And every time it came to a new project, it would ne never let up on the sort of discipline that it took to, to make a film. What were the most important things you learned in it? Because, you know, coming into this industry and being involved in film is, is quite a bit different than, than I think, almost any other industry that is out there. Uh, even, you know, being in the, in, the journal, in the news business that I've been for, you know, 25 years, it, film and this thing is, is something totally different. It, it, I agree. In many ways, it's different. But one of the things that I, that I really honed and learned at Pixar is that great work of any kind, whether it's great creative work, you know, making a film or great work in any industry or endeavor, um, requires this collaboration among competing forces. And it's the power to bring together the, all these disparate forces in a uh, sort of a, in a culture that allows for the right kind of collaboration, out of which, you know, great work, whether it's films or otherwise, it, it kind of emerges from, from the right kind of culture. It is, it is Pixar now, as, as part of the Disney uh, entity, is it, is it still as strong as it was back in, the, in, in and around the year 2000? Yes, I would say it is, and the reason for that is because the key to that acquisition was the agreement that not only would Pixar not change, but that Disney would learn from Pixar. So Disney Animation would sort of learn from and emulate in some ways, you know, what Pixar had done. And so you could say that the sort of, you know, the magic that was Pixar not only grew from that acquisition, but it expanded, and now we see the Disney Animation Unit producing these unbelievable films. And so I would say it's, in many ways, you could say it's stronger than ever. Well, and, and I was going to say, with some of the properties that, that Disney has added to their repertoire over the last several years, with the fact that, you know, they have Star Wars and they have the connection with the Muppets now, uh, and, and I, I think it's just an unbelievable opportunity for them to expand and, and really build on something that have been great franchises for the last, well, in the case of Star Wars, the last 40 years. Absolutely. You know, I kind of like to think that, you know, Pixar had a lot to do with that because I, it was one of the first of those sort of those kinds of acquisitions. And I think it showed, you know, the, the power in those. When, when you get the sort of, you know, the distribution uh, and marketing capacity of a company like Disney and you combine it with the creative genius and production capacity of a company like Pixar um, uh, or any of those others, then um, you, you really get an incredible result. It, it sounds like coming from your background and then being in the creative process that your mindset changed, uh, obviously, over the course of the years and probably still, uh, it, you know, it, it's it, it's probably a mindset that has changed and probably is not going to go back to what you were before, you know, pre-Pixar. That's right. I mean, I, I it, it did change. I mean, an example of that, actually, was writing this book, you know, when I came to write it, I... I sort of, you know, I had learned so much from, from Pixar that it really helped me. It helps me in, in all the work that I do now, in fact, uh, because I have this, um, you know, this, this sort of understanding of this, this process of, of creation that I, that I didn't have as well before. But how does, it, how does it help personally, you know, your personal life? Well, you know, that, that, um, 
you know, that it was a journey that I took, you know, beyond Pixar to sort of, uh, you know, understand how these kinds of ideas, you know, sort of play out in our personal lives. And so, um, you know, there are philosophies, and I actually use Pixar as a metaphor for some of these philosophies that um, in my personal life, you know, I'm, I'm much more able now to balance these conflicting things. And, right. Uh, and that is a lot, I think, has to do with the quality of our experience. Is that you talk about the, uh, this this idea it, it, towards the end of the book called the middle way? Yes. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yes. You know, the middle way is a, is in sort of an ancient philosophy, but in a nutshell, it it sort of has to say that there's like two people inside of us. One is a bureaucrat that is sort of focused on performance and functioning and getting things done, and the other is an artist or a free spirit. I just want to live and love and laugh and experience, you know, joy in life. And if we get stuck in either of those places, we can suffer. If, if life is all about performance, then we might sort of wonder if we ever really lived. If life is all about just being a free spirit, we might sort of feel like we don't have any momentum and be frustrated from that. And so the middle way is about harmonizing these sort of conflicting things within us and you know, I could see eventually that, wow, you know, Pixar was also about harmonizing these disparate forces. And so when we're able to harmonize these things, whether they're in businesses or whether within ourselves, I think the quality of our work, the quality of our experience goes up. Well, I, I guess to a degree that's that's something that has been a focus uh, with a lot of companies right now. And it kind of it, it, it falls into that work-life balance category, correct? It does in a way. I mean, I, I think that... The, the thing about uh, work-life balance is that it separates work from life. But, yeah. you know, when, when you're at work, you're still alive. And so, uh, and so I, you know, I think of it as these are tools, the, the, the philosophers, the, the tools that I've been studying, and I think of them as like a, a sort of technology of inner transformation. We're really good at outer transformation um, that allow us to, you know, bring a certain kind of, spirit and energy and quality to everything we do, you know, work, life, everything. So what is it that you're doing now outside of the book? Well, I run, uh, I'm a co-founder of uh, the Juniper Foundation, and uh, we've been doing that for over 10 years. And uh, the goal of the Juniper Foundation is to bring these sort of transformative technologies, meditation and the like from this sort of ancient tradition into contemporary life, because our belief is that Sometimes we get too, you know, we, 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 we get very stressed out by this relentless sort of one-dimensional performance acquisition at all cost orientation. And so this is work to try to help people find that kind of balance. Is the, and is that something that's readily acceptable uh, out there in, in Silicon Valley where you live? Well, you know, yes, I would say so, but I find it, you know, I find interest in it everywhere. You know, people seem to have a high recognition of this problem. If you just sort of are living in one dimension, it can kind of get a little hollow sometimes. And so these are ways to, to open up kind of another, another dimension in, a, in, in our lives, and we get resonance from it in all kinds of places. We're joined by uh, Lawrence Levy. The book is uh, is To Pixar and Beyond, My Unlikely Journey with Steve Jobs to Make Entertainment History. Uh, you're listening to Knowledge Award here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. When you think back about it, is it still even a little bit amazing when you when you look back at that first time you got that call from Steve Jobs to, to come join him at, at Pixar? Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole thing. I mean, looking back, it's completely amazing. You know, it's, it's one reason I wrote this. I, I knew this was 
kind of amazing story. I've told it, you know, on again and off again over the years. Uh, and um, although, you know, now you would think to yourself, wow, a call from Steve Jobs to, you know, run Pixar, that must be amazing. But at that moment in time, it was like, wow, you know, Steve was kind of like being written off as a has-been, and no one knew what Pixar was. And that's why the first chapter in the book is called, Why Would You Want to Do That? Yeah. That's what everybody said to me. What do you think about uh, about the life of Steve Jobs and what he did? And, and, and obviously his... Uh, his uh, his his really his reach on the on the whole tech industry with what he was able to do with as you said with Pixar but also to go back and and do what he did with Apple afterwards well you know i think within the tech industry in the computer industry you know steve was a visionary like no other and you know when he went back to apple the and i feel you know one thing he also he gained a lot from his experience with Pixar this is covered in the book as as well but one of those things was he really understood the entertainment industry as well. So by the time he went back, he had a long-standing vision of the computer industry. Now he had the, all the information about the entertainment industry, and all this came together in, in an exquisite way to produce, you know, all the products that uh, that we now know about. But you know, he, in, in terms of being the that kind of a visionary and thinker, he was the real deal. Great to have you on the show, Lawrence. Greatly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you. All the best. Lawrence Levy, uh, who is the author of the book To Pixar and Beyond, My Unlikely Journey with Steve Jobs to Make Entertainment History. It is available out in bookstores uh, and online now. You can pick it up. Great uh, look into the um, filmmaking world and uh, obviously entertainment with, uh, with Pixar as well. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.